Hi guys, welcome back to a Life Education Podcast. We're here today with Dr. Thoraya, Dr. T. Yes. Um, we wanted you to come in and talk, because you and I met, um, it's nearly a year ago now, maybe a bit more. Has it been that long? It was... Wow, yeah, I think so. It was a radio show where we were invited on to talk about aging. Yes. And I was taking it from the physiological perspective and you were talking about from the psychological perspective. Mm -hmm. So just through those conversations, um, it was quite clear that, you know, you had a nice way about you wanted to invite you on to speak to us today. Um, What we were kind of thinking was to go through just any ideas you might have on uh, what coaches who might not be aware of... The, the effect of people's psychology on their own either performance or on their own motivations to, to train. Um, so firstly, do you want to just briefly introduce yourself, kind of where, you, where, where you're from, what your background is, and then, and then we'll just roll from there? Sure. So my name is Dr. Thraya Kanafani, and I have been a clinical psychologist now for about uh, 15 years. And so mainly I work with, I specialize with teenagers and early adults and helping them um, progress, change their lives into, into what they're looking for. Um, I also work with couples, but mainly I work with teenagers and, and early adults. And my background is mainly in psychology. So I've studied psychology in different types of psychology. So educational psychology, counseling psychology, and then finally clinical psychology. And I've sort of worked in many different places. So um, this is by far one of the hottest places I've worked. Um, so I worked in Canada, the U.S., um, Bahrain, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, and now finally the UAE. And what kind of people are you seeing day to day? How's that, how's your day look? So um, mainly, like I said, I work with teenagers and uh, early adults. So most of my day is working with individuals who are either struggling with things like depression, with anxiety. They're struggling with uh, stress management, time management, also health difficulties. So there are a lot of different things that they experience here. But mostly what I've noticed that the early adults in the UAE tend to suffer with um, managing their life properly, um, kicking really bad habits that they're not happy with and looking for ways to change and to progress in their in their life what kind of habits do people struggle with so i would say mostly it would be exercising and eating healthy and this is what age group uh between 18 and 30 okay so not that young yeah i think that's like everyone yeah (laughs) so the early adults Yeah. yeah and this is i mean you know usually as a as a kid or as a teenager you have your parents that either are cooking for you or ordering for you or they taking care of your food. And then when you get to 18 and, and you start to become independent, you have to sort of do all of that for yourself. And the tendency is that people go for the easy stuff. It's whatever's available. It's uh, whatever I can get my hand, mm-hmm. you know, fastest on. And so they don't, they're not really cognizant or mindful of what they're eating, what they're putting in their body. And as they get older, they start to feel the effects of that. So that's where a lot of their difficulties are. And as you guys know, in the UAE, there's a lot of pressure on um, going to the gym, staying fit. You know, um, everybody is is really into the um, the health and the benefits of exercising. And so there's this social pressure as well that a lot of people are feeling in terms of going to the gym and making time to for themselves for exercising. And so they're really struggling to find a way to manage their life in that sense. And do you find so? Do you find that it's the exercise and the stress that's the main cause or are people coming to you for secondary things and sort of when you root and deep 
dig deep into it, you st- sort of find, okay, well, exercise is one thing that may change. Or is exercise, look, I want to I wanna be better, I want to be fitter, I want to be healthier. Well, you know, obviously with a lot of these kinds of um, what we call symptoms in terms of, you know, when somebody comes in and says, you know, I want to really work on my, I'm not exercising the way I want to, or I'm not eating the way I want to. Those are symptomatic for us because really there's an underlying issue that a lot of people don't really think of or or consider. Mm -hmm. So usually there's a lot of self-esteem difficulties. There's a lot of critical behavior that either they've done to themselves or has been done to them um, as they were younger. There's a lot of fear of failure. So there's a lot of underlying issues, especially emotional scars that prohibit people from actually getting to where they want to go. And that has to do with, you know, eating healthy or exercising or maybe even changing their career, things like that. Are uh, the food and exercise things affecting how they feel in terms of having depression and having anxiety and other other things absolutely so for us one of the first things we tell our clients um, or the first things we ask our clients is what is your food like and what is your actual life like so we look at four different aspects when we talk about Mm -hmm. mental health in general so we look at their eating habits their exercising their sleep habits and their breathing Um, whether or not they're taking some time you know for meditation or for deep breathing anything that they're doing to sort of calm themselves and relax themselves so when it comes comes to eating we look at especially for anxiety we look at caffeine intake and we look at sugar intake and for those two um, a lot of people especially when they're working really hard caffeine is just consumed Mm. uh, so much copious amounts absolutely and I I'll get some people that'll tell me you know I I don't drink that much coffee and I say well (laughs) how much coffee do you drink and then I'll hear something like 10 to about 15 cups of coffee a day (laughs) I'll say well that's about 14 too many Right. So yeah. so um, when we when we discuss the idea of caffeine, I, I not only look at coffee, but also there's like black tea, uh, Pepsi, Coke. So mm-hmm. anything that's caffeinated needs to be reduced significantly. And we're talking about like um, in terms of drinks. So obviously there's a little bit of caffeine in green tea. There's a little bit of caffeine in, in chocolate. You don't have to eliminate those, but it's it's the amount that you're you're taking in. And of course, sugar, sugar, refined sugar for uh, those that suffer with anxiety is extremely detrimental for them. So those two are the first things that I look at with anxiety as well. Um, red meat, although red meat is really good for a lot of people, reducing the, the amount. And in the Middle East, there's a very big red meat culture. So uh, the tendency is lunch and dinner or lunch or dinner, and then it's every single day of the week. So we try to minimize that because there is a hormone that we found in, in red meat that increases the levels of stress in the body. So, um, so there's a, we tell them like, you know, once every two, three days, like try to go for chicken, for fish, for more vegetables, things like that. So obviously water is very essential. Um, vegetables, fruits. So, basically looking at the the pyramid of, of, um, you know, the food pyramid. When it comes to uh, exercising, we tell people there has to be a minimum of 20 to 30 minutes a day of, you know, some sort of cardio exercise. It doesn't have to be at the gym. You don't have to be on a treadmill or like, you know, on a bicycle at the gym, but just something. It could be fast walking. It could be jogging. It could be running. It could be, it could be absolutely anything. Sometimes I tell the mothers that I work with, you know, because they don't have a lot of time. um, I tell them, you know, when you're at home, jump around with your kids, dance with them, like run around with them, you know, whatever it is, just get 20 to 30 minutes of cardio every single day in. And then, of course, sleeping patterns are by far one of the number one things that affect most mental health disorders. Mm -hmm. And then practicing deep breathing. 
for a lot of people in general, not just those that suffer with anxiety, sometimes taking a second and you know, really being um, present in the moment, cognizant of what's going on, on your, in your body, those things are very, very detrimental to positive mental health. Well, there's, there's a lot of research that shows that deep breathing also facilitates like moving into a parasympathetic nervous system response and allowing everything basically to relax. So it's super important for people who have anxiety. Absolutely. And it's also good for people to identify what's happening with their body because mm. when we're always on the go, we don't really recognize what's hurting us, what's affecting us. Mm. We're just like, we keep checking. And so the idea behind deep breathing is actually just taking a second and, and like scanning your body and seeing what's happening right now. So mm. a couple of things you said there, I just want to pick out on what, what's an adequate level of coffee or caffeine rather for somebody. Because <laughs> I drink a lot. I don't drink 10 or 15 cups. How much I, do you drink? I, I could. I mean, I've brought it down to maybe four, and that's at a lot. That's at most. I've, I, once I've hit three, I'm like, okay, I need to be careful now. And if I have one more, and it, it, I'm trying to. Ha- I used to be able to drink like a 10 p.m. coffee. Mm-hmm. I wasn't someone who had had 10, but I. Can you sleep though? Yeah. Well, I can shut my eyes and I can wake up the next morning, but I don't know if that's like okay. deep, meaningful kind of deep sleep. But I can definitely. I've no problem sleep. I don't lie there staring at the ceiling. But thinking. do you wake up in the morning feeling refreshed, or do you feel like you haven't really slept properly? Um, it's kind of hard because I would I would say I I definitely feel like I was out like a light, and then I would wake up tired, but it's like five a.m. because I'm in the gym at six a.m. So it's I'm, uh, like maybe put it down to that. I'm not getting eight hours sleep, but that's more of a I'm doing things too late in the evening, and then I just I'm, I'm up at five no matter what. Um, but uh, I like most I would have would be maybe six at my most in a day and would be one of them in the evening. I've reduced it now. I used to have one around half four to get me through the late gym sessions and I've cut that out. So what, but for someone who's suffering anxiety or like someone who's just got a whole wall of problems in front of them and exercise is going to be one, what, talk a little bit about the caffeine and then the water intake. Okay, so basically the, I guess the best uh, amount of coffee a day is one. Um, And now let me explain. It's not the coffee itself. It's the caffeine. So you can have six cups of coffee, but decaffeinated. So the idea is the caffeine to reduce the amount of caffeine in your in your system. So I usually suggest because a lot of people will associate uh, coffee with waking up with being able to like push through. And I tell them, actually, you'll find like green apples and dates will provide more energy sources for you than any cup of coffee would. So going a more natural route that way might actually be more beneficial. So one is the recommended in terms of um, caffeine intake, but it could be more if you're drinking more decaffeinated. Okay. Um, Yeah. But water, like you said, water is very important. So um, the recommended is obviously about a liter and a half to two liters a day, but it's also how you drink water. So a lot of people um, mistake how to drink water in their day. So they'll wake up, they'll have like a liter, and then they won't drink anything else for the rest of the day. Well, that's it's not good for the body to do that. So you have to sort of spread it out before and after meals, in the morning, at night. So there's a specific way of doing it that actually helps. And it depends on each person, obviously, because we have to also look at their medical background and see what's going on with them before we actually suggest to each person how to do it. But the best way to do it is to really sort of, um, you know, spread it out throughout the day. So like at least two cups in the morning, at least like one before you have, before you eat one after, uh, after you eat, of course, half an hour before and after. And then that, so those are for all meals. And then before you go to bed, same thing. Yeah. Cool. And then that's, 
separate to the water that you'll put in your coffee and the water that you'll put yeah. in your tea. That's right. just or your juices or yeah. anything like that. Absolutely. You're looking at just pure pure water. Do you advise anybody to use any sort of supplements in the water or anything along those lines or just go clean water? Well, it, it really depends. So some people just don't like the taste of water. For instance, I'm one of those people. I can't. I, I, I know people usually mm, say there is the no problem. taste to water, but I'm not. I really can't drink water on its own. So I'll put like, let's say, a slice of cucumber, a slice of lemon to just give it a little bit of a taste. But you're still um, you, you're still sort of like uh, drinking essentially what is necessary for your body. Yeah. Cool. And how do people take because what I find in the gym when I'm trying to tell people, OK, we need to change this, this and this. It's sort of like. If you tell somebody that they can't have a coffee in the morning, you're changing their whole reality. You've given them another problem that they have to now cognitively work with and deal and try and overcome. And same with the diet. Okay, you need to stop eating all of this and you need to eat all of these. How do people respond to that advice where you're saying, okay, we need to make a change? What's, is there a pushback or are, are people on board with it? And then what techniques would you sort of use or what strategy would you use to help people? Okay, I'll cut down from 10 to 1. Well, actually, the first thing I hear from most people is, you can take anything away from me, Doc, but I don't touch my coffee. So I tell them, okay, fine, let's make a compromise. I don't mind that you drink coffee, but let's go for decaffeinated. Let's start with, you have your coffee, the most important coffee that you have, which is, let's say, in the morning, mm. right? Um, so you'll have that coffee, and then throughout the, dra- the, throughout the day, um, go for decaf, and then maybe have a couple of more caffeinated throughout the day, but stop anything caffeinated after 6 p.m. Mm. So we start with baby steps. Obviously, I'm not asking them to stop everything in the beginning. So it's baby steps. It's going from like 10 caffeinated to maybe 4 caffeinated, 6 decaffeinated, you know? So things like that, adjusting baby steps and reasonable, realistic goals for them to be able to get to where they want. Because ultimately, I can't just ask them to shift from 0 to 100. Of course. And people, I find people have really, really strong associations with the food that they eat. And when you try and like oh why don't you try this people are really resistant i find a lot of the time to to changing their food absolutely and for us in general as psychologists we don't tell people to stop food at all um so for instance when people come in and they see me and they say you know well i'm supposed to start carbs and this and that and i say no don't do that don't just eliminate things from your from your diet unless a doctor tells you that this is something that's really not good for you. So mm. somebody suffering from diabetes, obviously you're not supposed to be eating a lot of things that have sugar. Um, so when when we look at their diet, we say don't stop completely. Because whenever you tell somebody, remove this from your diet, they automatically want it more. So the idea is, is just tell them, minimize. Just keep minimizing, minimizing. And then eventually people start to figure out the diet that works for them. And more often than not, they will start to remove the things that are unhealthy for them because of the fact that they start to feel yeah, better. Yeah. So ultimately, you don't really need to, get to tell them that in the beginning. They ultimately get there. Mm. And then, So that's for people that will help with anxiety. What else will reducing your caffeine help with? Well, opening your water. Uh, I would say even depression. So with with depression, you know, obviously you have that like sort of reduced mood, and the caffeine. What it does is that it, it starts to like increase your your heart rate. It gives you that sense of adrenaline, and um, for for those that suffer with depression, then they, what ends up happening is that they they get this like feeling that they're not usually used to, and in general, depression and anxiety sort of are comorbid, so they happen very often together, and either that'll trigger 
um, feelings of anxiety or it might make them feel so uncomfortable that this is something that they've never really felt before that they'll start to overthink it and then say what's happening to me and actually go to very dark places. So mm-hmm. it's usually best to avoid um, copious amounts of, of caffeine just in general for your for not just your physical health but also, also for your mental health. So I have a question. I know this might be a silly question. What's the difference between having anxiety and having like a panic attack? Are they the same similar things or are they very different? So essentially you could say they're similar but they're not the same. So having a panic attack is is very specific to certain symptoms that occur that co-occur in a very short period of time. So you're talking about things like um, your heart racing, starting to sweat, clammy hands, difficulty breathing, or that sort of like a rock on your chest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That kind of a thing. Hyperventilating. Exactly. Or, or not necessarily hyperventilating, but just feeling like that heaviness on your chest that you can't really breathe properly. Um, also there's a sense of dizziness, maybe some nausea. So all of those symptoms, um, or at least five of those symptoms co-occurring in a very short period of time. So that is what a panic attack is. Whereas anxiety, you might feel those symptoms, but those symptoms occur almost consistently, but not all together. So you might feel a sense of like my heart and is not racing. not in a short period of time. Exactly. Okay. It's just prolonged. It's over time. And there's this constant worry that you're always worried about something happening. You're always worried about, um, you're always overthinking things. And really it's, it's when we talk about anxiety, it's about the worry or the thoughts of the future. It's the what ifs. So and exercising, it's the same thing. Or even with, with um, dieting, it's the sorry, same. Sorry, just to interrupt you there. And depression is worrying about the past. Absolutely. Okay, so yeah. I understand. So, so that's mm-hmm. the, the main difference between the two, I guess you would say, uh, when you're not really look at the, looking at the symptoms. But with anxiety, when you're worrying about the future, it's always like a what if this would happen. So for a lot of people even that suffer from anxiety, unfortunately, that heart racing um, is associated with a panic attack or an anxiety attack. And so what they'll do is they'll avoid going to the gym because obviously when you're at the gym and you're, you're doing any kind of cardio, you're, you know, your, your heart is mm-hmm. racing and you're feeling that. And so they automatically get scared. So they don't exert themselves too much because they're like, if I push further, I'll have a panic attack. Or if I push further, I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to feel the anxiety again. And they try their best to stay away from that. Do you get people telling you that? Absolutely. That they they don't want to go to the gym because they feel the same sensation as they do when they're having their anxiety or their panic attacks. Right. And not just not going, but not exerting. So they'll go to the gym, but they'll just do the bare okay, minimum. Okay. Sorry, I was going to say, so then you would recommend, say, doing low impact things like walking, like yoga yeah absolutely or sometimes i'll even tell them tell your coach or tell your trainer Mm -hmm. that you suffer from anxiety so that they know not to push too hard and even if you guys decide that right now i'm in a good place i can push a little bit further that they're there to help you that they're here there to help you breathe through it and even if you start to feel that anxiety to take a step back you know and so it's really about what we call um systematic desensitization so it's about like baby steps of working through your anxiety so even if you feel it a bit it's okay like take a second and then you know feel it a bit more so the more you desensitize yourself to the anxiety the less the fear um, yeah. will be long term it's sort of like just don't let the onset of the anxiety cause you more anxiety absolutely like stay if, if you're feeling anxious about something 
maybe just yeah I understand what you're saying instead of letting you just slip and go down into the rabbit hole I think though what you were mentioning before that you deal with a lot of like young adults and teenagers it's hard for young teenagers to differentiate that to be like okay well this is just a panic attack and not get into their body and actually feel and just be in that sensation and that feeling so what do you do to to teach people about the differences or about how to understand it well I think there's there are a few things that that people sort of um, might think of interchangeably, which is the idea of of worrying or being nervous, and then they'll they'll think that's anxiety, or then they might think their anxiety is is like a panic attack. So I usually educate from the from the bottom, which is you know it's natural for all of us to worry about things. It's natural for all of us to to be nervous about certain things. You know, you're presenting in front of 500 people, you're going to get nervous. That's natural. Mm-hmm. If your mom's yelling your full name, you're going to worry that you've done something wrong. You know, so those are natural things to have. Those are not anxiety. So anxiety is really like the constant worry um, about things to come, and it's just generalized to a lot of different things. And you can't stop the worrying, no matter how hard you try. So between those two, um, that's where I start uh, in terms of educating not just the teenagers that I work with, but really just absolutely everybody that I work with. And I explain to them that you don't have to worry so much about getting a panic attack if you know, you're just naturally worrying about things. Um, when it comes to anxiety, though, I really help a lot of people in terms of breathing. Breathing is very, very important. Like when you start to um, feel anxious about something, like you're really suffering from anxiety – Breathing exercises will really slow all the physiological symptoms that will eventually like overwhelm you and get you to stop thinking properly. Yeah, breathing is amazing. I've used it a lot in like my life, but it has this ability to just totally calm you down and just bring you back to like, oh, I'm back. <laughs> right. And there are a lot of people that will say to me, mm. my God, Dr. T, like don't throw that breathing stuff at me, that meditation but stuff at honestly, me. But honestly, it's actually like, it's actually true. Like I've told this story lots, but I've been like when I was in hospital, like one minute to the next, I my heart rate would go through the roof and all of a sudden it was like at almost like 200 beats, like it was going mental and I was in so much pain and just lots of things happening at the same time and I remember just like starting to breathe and it would, or actually someone would read me a story and then like I would start to breathe and then everything, you could just see all the numbers just drop down and come back to normal and it's amazing, especially when you're stuck to things that monitor everything that you do um yeah it's, it's pretty amazing yeah i mean like it's it's the type of thing that it gives you a tool yeah it, it and it's so undervalued yeah sorry no yeah no it is for sure i tell people i was just on a on a uh, radio last week talking about stress and she left us with the final words and the whole hour we had myself and my colleague matt we hadn't got to talk about breathing. And all I could say, like, in the 30 seconds was just, look, buy into the breathing mechanism, buy into the practices. Because it gives you a tool. Like, it gives you one element of control. Like, when everything is going haywire and your brain is gone, you're triggered, you're angry, you're, you're, not, you're upset, yeah. whatever it is, it's like you can go berserk or you can come all the way back inside yourself and just mm. breathe. And you don't have to be a meditator for half an hour. Yeah, all you silence. need to do is lay on the floor, put your hands on your belly, and just watch your belly rise and fall and just be mindful and aware yeah. of it. And that in, in a minute. Like That's if you have the luxury of lying down. But let's say you're in your car and you're, you're going yeah. crazy in traffic or if you're, you're in a meeting. I've been in meetings where people have said stuff and my anxiety would go, Whoop, and then it's like, I'll just 
almost turn my ears off, stop listening to what's going on, and just start breathing. And it's like, okay, because now I can just get control of my own nervous system. Um, but I think that is one of the most important things. And now there's, there's apps and stuff out there you can get for, for 10, 15, 20 minutes a morning where you don't have to do anything. You don't need to speak to anybody to coach you. You just sit down, put your earphones in, and it just teaches you through it. Um, that's usually on the value. Th- like, from a physiological perspective, just getting the oxygen out of the air through the bottom part of your lungs is a task that a lot of people can't do. Like, they get the air in, they get the air in from, from outside into their lungs, but it sits in the top. The air doesn't get down to the bottom where the alveoli is. The alveoli is what transfers the oxygen from the air into the bloodstream. But then there's another, that's not the end of the job. What has to happen then is in your cell, in your nerve cell, in your muscle cell, in your digestive, whatever you want to call it, whichever cell, they bind into the same receptor as carbon dioxide. So what needs to happen is that carbon dioxide from your previous breath needs to exit that receptor, create the space for the oxygen to get in so the oxygen can go to the final destination and do its thing. If you're not breathing out enough, if you're not exhaling enough, that receptor is just going to stay full and the oxygen is going to whiz past it in your bloodstream. So by breathing out and really focusing on those slow, controlled breaths, you're clearing out your cells to allow the oxygen to jump into the receptor and then do it, do what it needs to do. And that, ha- that happens in the brain, so that's going to calm your brain down. Yeah, it's well, didn't we have... So we had one of another presenter talking about um, vagal tone, the, the like 10th cranial nerve and vagal tone and how when you breathe and swallow, it stimulates and helps with vagal tone and then that in, in itself stimulates a parasympathetic response yeah. or elicits is the best yeah i think that word. was doc- dr Linnell, yeah from, yeah from the car and clinic. then it would immediately like calm you down so there's lots of like neurological and physiological reasons why breathing yeah do you want to just explain the vagus nerve no <laughs> so basically the vagus nerve is kind of an internal nerve i'm it's sure the 10th cranial nerve sorry that, <laughs> that controls your autonomic nervous system so feeding that with oxygen is going to allow everything just get a better how would you explain it? Well, th- there's actually really pretty pictures of it. You can look at it on the internet, but it basically comes down. I think it's from the brainstem and then goes all the way down um, and it creates like this beautiful like, reverse tree. Um, sorry, you probably know this. <laughs> Not that much. But I have Why don't idea. you explain it to us? <laughs> no, actually, I don't have that much information about it. I did my best as much as I could in, during all of my psychology studies to stay away from all of the biological aspects because that's one of the reasons why I didn't go to med school because those words, they just don't stick in my brain. <laughs> really, yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's the sort of the vagus nerve. And before we go into the details and get it all wrong, we'll, we'll kind of move on. Um, talking more then about the kind of bad habits that people have, what way, what's the sort of, wor- aside from diet and lifestyle and coffee and lack of sleep, like, what are your major hacks for helping people fix their lifestyle or, or bad habits rather? Well, actually, if if you don't mind, I'd rather go back just a bit, rewind yeah. just a bit in terms of habits, right? Yeah. So a lot of people, when we when we talk about the idea of habits, we think of bad habits. There's an automatic like, oh, bad habits, bad habits. But the reality is, is that habits are actually good for us in many different ways. So try to imagine yourself like waking up in the morning your first thing that you do, you might get out of bed, you go to the bathroom, you wash your face, brush your teeth, you might shower, you know, things like that. That is a habit that you do. It's a good habit because what it does is that it makes your routine so automatic that your brain no longer has to waste conscious thought 
on doing that in the morning. So it's an automatic thing that happens to you. So when we talk about habits, we have to remember that our everyday actions are our habits. However, there are habits that are that negatively affect us and there are habits that positively affect us. So in general, habits are actually really good for us in general and they're very good for our brain because we don't have to waste energy on thinking about absolutely every single thing that we do in life. So unfortunately, this also works against us because um, we end up you know, engaging in, in bad behaviors and when we do that over and over again, they turn into bad habits. So um, the part of the brain that is actually in not just involved but responsible for those kind of habits they work for both types of habits so good and bad so when it comes to bad habits we look at them and we say okay they're harder to break obviously a because nobody wants to break a good habit and b because it's it has the exact same like it works with the same brain mechanism that that um, you know, our good habits do. So when we talk about habits in general, it's any in- enjoyable activity, right? Like, so in, in essence, um, when you're engaging in something and it provides any kind of enjoyable feeling for you, it releases, as most people have heard of like the reward system, it releases dopamine. And so dopamine ha- gives us that like feel good feeling. And The first time you try like some fast food, you might feel good about it, you know, but later on you might regret it. But initially you feel good about it. And, or if you don't go to the gym and you find, you like relax and watch some TV instead, you might feel good about it in the moment. And eventually when you repeat that over and over again, you develop this bad habit of, let's say, not eating healthy or not going to the gym or not necessarily engaging in the things that you're supposed to do to progress in your life. So these bad habits are essentially things that we just consistently do over and over again in a negative way and our brain actually works against us when it comes to changing that and that's one of the reasons why it's very hard for people to break bad habits because of the fact that our brain actually works against us even though there are many more areas in the brain that actually are more adaptive and they're and it and it you know it uh, it fights for us to do better things but that reward system in our brain fights against us in breaking these bad habits, right? So when we talk about different bad habits, we have to first look at like the, in terms of like tips, I would say, um, first looking at the realistic timeline. So a lot of people will say, you know, and before it was 21 days to break a, mm-hmm. break a habit, and then it became 66 days to break a habit. And now there's some sort of consensus about 40 days to break a habit. But the reality is it could, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many days it takes to break the habit because essentially you want to remain consistent. So when you give it a deadline, people usually after that deadline will say, oh, okay, well, I kicked my habit. So I'm good now. Now I can go back and eat a donut. (laughs) Right. Now I can have a donut and not worry about going back to eating donuts all the time, which Mm -hmm. is inaccurate. That's not, so that focus on the time limit has, it actually hurts people rather than help them. So I'll give you an example. So for myself, for instance, I used to be a smoker and I smoked for a very long time and about five years ago I quit smoking and my friends and and like you know people I asked to help me they would say you know just the first month go for the first month then the second month then the third month and I'm five years in and I can tell you to this moment honestly I still crave a cigarette so how long later sorry five years okay so I'm five years away from cigarettes but to this moment I could still pick up like I still feel like I could pick up a cigarette. So even though I've passed all the markers that everybody has ever talked about, 
it doesn't matter. If I focus on the fact that I've passed that marker and I can smoke like one cigarette, it's not that big of a deal. It actually could be because I might go back and smoke again because Have I you had, know. You haven't had one cigarette in five years? Not a single cigarette in five years. How did you quit five years ago? I just, <laughs> I just went cold turkey. You just stopped. I just woke up one, one day and I was like, yeah, 13 years of smoking is enough. So I'm done now. And did you employ any strategies? No. Just literally woke up and stopped. And then I, I applored my friends to love me, even though I was super ang- or irritating and frustrating. Um, and I told them, guys, please be careful. <laughs> you went through a withdrawal symptom? Absolutely. Yeah. Every withdrawal symptom. I was f- like irritated all the time. So super irritable. Um, I, I would get frustrated at the smallest thing. I, I had headaches, uh, really bad headaches, and I have, I'm susceptible, susceptible to migraines anyways. So I had really bad headaches. I used to get thirsty all the time, craving other things. So, um, so in general, when, when I looked at my, my habit, I wasn't like, oh my God, this is a bad habit. I need to stop. It was just, I'm done because my value system for me is different now. Right. So, and I think that's one of the things that is really important when you're thinking about breaking a habit is looking at who you are as an individual and recognizing your value system and then saying to yourself, do I have the same value that I had before when I, w- I started my bad habit? So for instance, when I was younger, of course, you know, I fell into the social pressure of smoking is cool and things like that. And then it, I just got addicted. And then when I when I grew up, if you will, <laughs> when my mindset changed, when my value system changed, I looked at it as my health is more important to me than looking cool and fitting in than whatever it was that I started with. So I need to change. I need to live according to my value system and change the value system and my identity that comes along with that. So that's when I just woke up and I decided to change. And for a lot of people breaking their bad habits, I think they need to look for the why. So when you're looking as a trainer, um, I know a lot of people come through and they say, you know, I want to get more toned or I want to lose weight or I want to do this and I want to do that. Those are superficial reasons. You need to go deeper. You need to find a deeper reason because that's not a big enough why, you know, because if it was, they would have done it before. The reality is, is that you need to find a deeper reason why this is, you need a bigger why, a bigger reason to motivate people. And ultimately in the beginning, you might not find that reason. You have to just help them figure yeah. that out eventually. Yeah, I think that's very important. But I was, I did some work in the UK a long time ago as a very commercial PT in one of the big, big chains over there. And they put us through training. Uh, one of the sales strategies was ask why like four or five times, something like that, like a bunch of times. A bunch beyond what you would normally ask in a regular conversation with somebody you've just met like eight minutes ago um and it was difficult like when i am you try to do it because you're trying to learn you're trying to you're trying to build your business you sit down yeah it's very awkward to say to somebody why and they say i want to lose weight i say why oh, i'm just not happy and you you what you're trying to penetrate somebody's uh Defenses. yeah immediately and I, I don't think people are ready for that it's 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 great if someone is so open and willing to to with to offer that info, but I think what you said is very true. It takes a while. It takes a while to really get into the why, um, and that comes with just person personal relationships. You're just building that, building the rapport with people, and gaining their trust. Um, but I think so. I think the values thing is is key. 
when you're trying to get people to shift from so you have the smoking example what example do you see with people in the clinic uh that you can use the exercise to help break their habits you mean physical exercise yeah yeah, uh, yeah. So health and fitness right habits let's just say so well i think across the board with everything that all my clients come in with. So even, even when it comes to like relationship difficulties or when it comes to stress management, when it comes to unhappiness in their life, difficulty with their parents, whatever the, the topic is, physical activity, like I had mentioned before, physical activity, eating healthy, sleeping, breathing exercises or meditating, all of those things are essential. So what I try to get them to understand is, you know, ultimately it's your life your choices, your consequences. So if you decide to not engage in any kind of physical activity, if you decide to not engage in healthy eating or sleeping habits or things like that, then ultimately you're the one who's suffering the consequences. And you may not care now, but you will care later whether you like it or not. And so that usually gets them to, to, to be on the same page in the beginning. And Essentially, people don't necessarily change initially when it comes when they when they come and they talk to me. But I have to respect, and I do respect their process. And I think that becomes a, a bit difficult with when when you're a trainer or when you're a coach or an instructor. It's harder because you have like a short period of time because if they're taking like personal training um, sessions. There's like usually pay for like, let's say 10 sessions, 20 sessions. And so there's a, there's an expectation, like an underlying expectation that something needs to change. But if a person is not ready for that process, then that change is very difficult and they'll do their best in general to blame everybody around them. You know, like my PT wasn't good enough or like he didn't, you know, push me hard enough or she didn't do this or that. So what I, what I usually tell the trainers or, or my clients or anybody that I'm working with, I tell them take it easy, slow it down. There's no expectation that you have to actually complete things in a specific amount of time because I'll even get clients that'll say to me, okay, Dr. T, like how long is this going to take? And I'll tell them it's as long as you need it to take. So sometimes it might take two weeks. Sometimes, I mean, it never takes two weeks realistically because I only see them once a week, but it might take eight weeks. It might take 10 years. I don't know. It all depends on the effort that you're ready to put in. And I think that's important when it comes to physical training as well, because essentially people might come in with this like boost of energy. It's sort of like, you know, New Year's resolutions, like you start off with like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And then by a month later, like nobody's doing anything. So I think, you know, they come in with this high expectation, like I'm finally going to get to exercise. I'm finally going to get to lose weight, to tone myself, to like build, you know, my stamina, my energy. And then after the first, you know, high of the expectation like starts to die down it's like well you know I'm not really and it's and it's because it comes in a bundle it's not just one thing that you need to focus on it's absolutely everything so like we were saying the value system um and how you identify yourself and the expectations that you also put on yourself so I think it's important for trainers to recognize and to share with with their with their clients that you're not going to get to where you want to be in the time that you think Sometimes removing that pressure allows them to actually get to where they want to faster. But um, when they come in with a fast expectation, uh, usually what ends up happening is either they achieve, but then they don't continue, or they don't achieve, and then they're demotivated. So one of the biggest things about breaking bad habits is not 
you know, learning about something new, it's really consistency. Consistency is by far the most important thing about breaking a habit. It's just the more you go against the temptation of sticking to a bad habit, the more likely you are to actually break the bad habit. And so when it comes to physical exercise, eating healthy, things like that, you just have to be consistent. So if you go to the gym the first six months and nothing's changed, that's okay. Keep going. Because if you minimize, or not minimize, but maybe look at your expectations in a more realistic way, it might help you not demotivate yourself. And I think um, trainers and coaches and, and instructors are the best at that. They're really good at helping people sort of set their expectations to a proper manner because they are the ones that really know. You know, you know what when a client comes in, when you see their body, when you see, you know, their health, their life, all of those things, you know, you can tell, like, what are they going to actually be able to do? And making that clear to the client in the beginning is really important because then they set their expectations to something a lot more realistic and measurable rather than, you know, that, oh, I just want to change and, and sort of be a pipe dream. Yeah, and you'd be surprised the amount of people who they don't adjust their expectations. Um, As in you, they want change really quickly. Yeah, yeah like and I'm going to transform my body in three months. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then and then they but uh, three months passes and why did it take so long? Well, Nothing maybe something happened. hasn't happened at all. Yeah, but it's more a case of uh I can tell by their attendance and I can tell by like you said like from my experience I sort of know how well you were doing on this on the on the on the spectrum of uh your typical person, not like an average as in your average ability, but the average person that I'll see come through. And I know that like you didn't make the gym once almost out of every three sessions we missed one um or you 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 couldn't come in this day you couldn't come in but like what you're saying doesn't quite match what actually happened um and it's difficult to have those conversations with people and say to them look it's it's actually you like it's you who didn't do the thing that we needed you to do it's you who kept saying oh you had a terrible weekend with your diet or you were out all night or you were out partying like you're telling me it's all about balance. You're, you're, you're like that's your justification for doing what you're doing, but balance has you where you have got to. Like you actually need to tip the balance. You actually need to tip the scales away from balance and make a huge effort. Um, I've, it's very hard to have those those conversations with people. I was going to ask you as well, and um, a lot of times when we have these conversations, we're focused at the people who aren't exercising or who aren't sleeping well. But I was going to ask you what advice you would have for people who are going to the gym or who are exercising like where can they go because there was a, a gentleman who was working with me as a trainer and he was going through a divorce and I, we were having a conversation I remember thinking like usually I would tell you like get in the gym every day do this this like but you're already doing that so I don't really know like how you can make yourself feel like how you can change your endorphins because these stresses that you have it's built on a foundation of you training every day so what, what, what specific advice, what else can those people do? Should they change something? Should they, should they? So I think, and 
This is uh, sort of the biggest misconception, I think, when it comes to mental health is that people usually think, you know, if you go to the gym and you eat healthy, you should start feeling better. You know, that's not actually accurate because of the fact that when we look at mental health, we have to consider five different aspects. So, yes, absolutely. Your behavior. So like the way you live your life is definitely a significant contributor. But so are genetics. So is the neurobiology in your brain. So is your personality and the way that you think. So all of these factors will affect your mental health. So for instance, if you're going to the gym, you're eating healthy, you have a good lifestyle. So your behavior is taken care of, but your personality, your thought process, your genetics and your biology are still there. So you can't just assume that because this one's working, all the rest are going to work as well. So you need to, of course, I would say if you, if you are doing everything that you can, but nothing seems to be working. It's always better to consult a professional to see what else can you do? Because ultimately you don't want to, you don't want to assume that you're not doing enough because then you go into like, you know, um, the failure feel feeling that like, I'm not succeeding at what I want to do. And, and that starts to put people down and being self-critical that way. So the reality behind that is that sometimes people require medication. Sometimes they don't at all. Sometimes they just require some sort of like talk therapy. Sometimes, you know, talking to a friend is enough, but really it's, it's, it's about, looking at it holistically and not just from one perspective. And although especially exercising and and eating habits and sleep patterns are by far very significant contributors to mental health, they're not the only contributors to mental health. Yeah, I think that's that also falls in line with some of my clients in particular. I'll, I'll only speak for myself. The guys who and girls who are coming in regularly and like stuff isn't really changing. What advice would you give like... I sort of start to think, okay, maybe you need to go get, like, have a, a an appointment with someone like you. How would I bridge that gap without, like, when when is the, what am I trying to say? When is the, okay, that's the moment. Now I know. The light bulb moment in my head, right, you need to go get some support from someone else. Well, I think the light bulb moment um, is something that's felt more than instructed. So I think you would notice when you see your client is doing everything that they can and really struggling and, and are motivated and are putting in all the effort, but they're still not feeling better. I think at that moment you start to recognize that, especially when you're a trainer that actually cares about your, your clients, you'll notice that automatically. And when you do, that's when you can simply say to them, you know what? I've noticed that you have worked so hard and you've done everything that you can in this realm and you have been and you've succeeded so well here there seems to be something else that might be a little bit deeper than what i'm used to so maybe speak to somebody else you know yeah. in, in terms of I like think a psychologist for there. that to happen you need to one be in tune with them and one really want the best for them as Absolutely. well so if those two things are, are there then yeah and you've built enough rapport then you're going to be able to see or, or have that what is that where you have that sense Mm -hmm. uh where you can see that someone needs assistance and then yeah and i think that empathy is just there when you truly care about your Mm. clients so if you care about them and your then their progress holistically it won't you'll never stop yourself from saying you know maybe there's something else that you should be doing so then their reply is are you saying i'm crazy (laughs) that's always the reply when it comes to psychologists or psychiatrists then i say if, I mean, essentially, there's no such thing as crazy because there's no such thing as normal. 
That's the reality okay. of life. I've never met somebody who's normal. Yeah. Um, and I've been doing this for a very long time. Well, what is normal, really? Like, right. what is the definition of a human being that's normal? Because this is like, we are very far away from what normal is for a species to be living in, in like infrastructure the way that it is interacting with technology the way that it is if we look at humans like 200 years ago like we were very different even a thousand years back so what is normal absolutely and essentially the word normal come came from a from the research of very western um, societies at the time when they started creating um, research behind psychology and psychiatry and things like that. But what's what's normal for for me and my culture may not be normal for you and your culture may mm-hmm. not be normal for you. You know, so there is no such thing as normal. But what there is, and what most psychologists will look at is um, what is healthy. So what is mentally, psychologically, and emotionally functional for that person? So that is what we focus on more than... Actually, we don't focus on yeah. that word normal because there is no such thing. Yeah. Healthy. <laughs> it's healthy and it's functional. So that's mm-hmm. what it is. It has to be functional for the individual themselves. So essentially, when somebody says to me, you know, I came to see you, that means I'm crazy. I say, well, if you're crazy, I'm crazy. And then now we have a problem because, yeah. <laughs> because now two crazies are not going to be able to help each other. So I tell them there's no such thing. There's no such thing as crazy because there's no such thing as normal. But what we need to focus on is that you're not where you want to be. And that's why you're here because we're just going to, we're going to work together to find out how we can get you to where you want to be because essentially that's what's your normal and that's what matters. I think that's awesome. I think that's good yeah, advice. Yeah, it is really great advice. I like the wording of it too. You're not where you want to be because it just changes everything. It's like you're crazy, you need help, that's why you're here. No, it's right. like you want to better your life and you need things to change because you're not where you should be yeah. or want to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and, I, and that's I like almost it. inarguable because they're there talking to yeah. me as a healthcare professional or the trainer or the yoga instructor after the class you're here to make a change, you're here to be better. Because uh, I also believe as well that even people who would consider themselves normal or healthy would still benefit from a, a session with a psychologist or somebody just to like, just to, I don't know, flatten things out or, or iron some, some things out. Well, I think people, a lot of people these days are going to see like health coaches or they see like life coaches or they see business coaches. So psychology is almost now like it has friends you have friends basically that also are doing similar things but not with this type of qualification or specialization well you know when it comes to let's say business coaches or life coaches things like that their their focus is usually on you're at a and you want to be at b Mm. so let's get you there so it's very problem um oriented so our solution oriented um to be fair uh but with psychology it's a little bit different it's sort of you're at A, you want to get to B, what's stopping you? Mm -hmm. So what are the underlying issues that are there? And just like some um, therapy styles, even in psychology, are too solution-focused. So what ends up happening is that people end up repeating the behavior later on. Sometimes with life coaching, it's the same. So life coaching is great when it comes to certain issues, absolutely. But there are areas, just like you were saying, that you know people are doing everything that they can, but they're not getting there. So what else yeah. is there? So 
a certified life coach will know that we'll see that mm-hmm. and we'll say you know we've done everything that we can but this is now more on a psychological issue than it yeah. is a real solution focus yeah. so it's it's the same thing with you know when you're watching your client like progress do everything they can physically but there's still something that's there mm-hmm. so that's where you know they yeah, would refer. sometimes i think there's like you've got self-sabotaging like elements mm-hmm. to everybody's personality and it's like yeah i'm gonna get there but Going to a psychologist helps you to understand what that self-sabotaging element is. Do you need it? Why is it there? Et cetera, et cetera. Right. I'm just saying, I don't know. <laughs> right. A lot of the things that we we do in our life are are usually unconscious, like the motives behind the mm. things that we do. And, um, you know, a lot of my clients will come in and they'll say things like, you know, I know what I need to do. I just can't get myself to do it. There's just this disconnect between where I am and where I know I and how I know I can get there, but I don't do it. Mm. And I tell them that in general, we have a function for every single thing that we do. So if you're not doing something, it's serving a function for you as well. So finding that function helps you overcome it. So for instance, if, um, if I have a client uh, that I can think of off the top of my head and as an example, um, I have a client who knows exactly what they're supposed to be doing in terms of moving forward to be able to get their life to where they want to be, right? And they know exactly how to do it as well, but they, they don't get themselves there. And then when we've explored the function of not moving forward, he realized that for him, it's, he's in a comfort zone. And he knows these variables and he's very scared about what happens if I try and then I fail. Yeah. And that for and him scares lose, lose what you've you've gained. Absolutely. And yeah. that for him scares him far more than not getting to where he wants to be. So that fear of failure, that mm-hmm. recognition that I might not succeed is far more detriment I mean, it's detrimental to his self worth rather than him not getting there. You know, so, so those kind of functions, it's, it's, it's important for people to recognize as well. So everything that we do serves a function. Once we recognize those functions and a lot of those functions are usually very unconscious. Mm. So once we recognize those, they are, they're very sneaky and people are really good at, at implementing, um, defense mechanisms to stop themselves from recognizing those and functions acknowledging <laughs> exactly i just yeah. started reading a book i wish I, we'd spoken in in a month when i have got from only on the second chapter called the elephant in the brain mm-hmm. <laughs> and it talks about how self-deception is a function to serve you in a sort of in some sort of psychological beneficial way but I'm on like page 25, so I can't. Oh, I can't talk about it. That means you have to come back on, and then we'll we have, have to, to talk do about it again. This book. Yeah. I have to read it too. Then <laughs> it's really interesting. It, it, it basically talks about you sort of create. Um, it, right now, the book is, is setting the scene from the anthropological perspective, so it's talking about monkeys and politics and that kind of thing. But it talks about it, the idea is that you create uh, excuses in your mind to not do things, and you like to, to because it will it could potentially upset you moving forward in the future. Um, unless people get to like a tipping point or like a threshold like where this is so bad that you have to do something about it yeah they like get, yeah they have found out something bad happens and they have to, yeah and that's a health thing that can be your health suddenly deteriorates yeah, like you get cancer or something and yeah. then you're like all right i have to make a change yeah uh, or enough yeah anyway. yeah or you get a shock blood test result or anything and yeah. it's like okay now i really need to uh to get a handle on this and the, the the mechanisms the habits and stuff that you've created haven't been serving you um so we'll, we'll, we'll finish up shortly i just wanted to say 
speaking to a trainer who's trying to deal with someone who they think may do something more psychological, what kind? What would you? What would you find? Or or a yoga instructor or um, somebody you know, a client dealing with some because it, it's it's it tends to be a bit more about the body image and diet and nutrition. Those two things, you know, food is the I feel bad about myself. And then I just, the, the body, thing that makes me feel better is the sugar. Yeah, the body image one is, is huge because you can have people that have vastly different body images in their mind of what they actually look like. And it's like, well, I know people say with eating disorders and things like that, they have very, very different body images. I can't remember what my question is. <laughs> Sorry. No, well, yeah, it, it is all different per person. Like you'll definitely know when somebody has an eating disorder. Well, you, maybe not. Gosh, that's probably too easy to say. Um, but what advice would you give to a to a coach who's dealing with somebody who who kind of needs that little bit of extra help that the coach is either maybe they're able to help them with one or two things or say right now it's time to go see somebody? Well, what I would suggest is first look at what has been done. And essentially, if everything's been done in terms of like you were saying, like food and exercise and things like that, then just be open and honest with your client and just tell them, you know, I think it's a good time now to, to maybe look at things that are far deeper than your just your behaviors. Um, but if certain things can be changed. So for, for, for an example, um, if you have a client who's working on some things that the PT is, or, or the yoga instructor or anybody else is used to, and, um, and it's not working for them. Sometimes I say consult with others. So consult with your colleagues. Maybe they have a suggestion that might help change the way the client behaves or feels or anything like that. So sometimes start within your circle of colleagues and professionals. And if nothing is working, then go into, you know, all right, I think maybe it's time to explore other avenues as well. And don't be shy to do that because I think um, we usually struggle to talk about mental health because we don't think of it like physical health. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, if it's somebody who, who suffers from uh, cancer or anything uh, or diabetes or high, high blood pressure or cholesterol, nobody like struggles to talk about that. But when it comes to mental health, we have the stigma um, that, oh, you know, I don't want to offend the person, whereas it's, it's not an offense. Absolutely not. It's, you know, we think of the brain as as um, more theoretical and abstract where it's actually an organ like the rest yeah. of our body. And it can can struggle just like any other organ in our body. So um, be honest and open and don't do it in a way that um, that might shock your client as well. Uh, maybe have a sit down with them, talk to them openly and honestly. And sometimes I tell people to be transparent, be genuine. So a lot of my clients appreciate when I tell them that, you know, as a psychologist, I go through things too. And I talk to my other psychologists as a way of venting and like releasing and ironing things out. We're all human. We all get affected by things and it's okay to, to just sort of talk things out with somebody who's not in your life and can be completely objective. So, um, sharing sometimes you don't have to have full self-disclosure, but sharing some things allows the person sitting in front of you to be like, Oh, okay. You know, this person that I look up to, um, struggles as well. So I guess I could do it too. And so you give them that human feeling to it as well. Cool. Awesome. Um, well, where can people get in touch with you online or on social media or anything like that if they want to speak to you? Wow. So <laughs> a few places. So my, um, I guess, Instagram and Twitter handle is at Dr. Thraya. Um, my name spell that. <laughs> so it's just D-R and then 
T-H-O-R-A-I-Y-A. It's very complicated. Um, but I work at the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. Um, and so we have that handle as well if my name gets too complicated. So it's just H-R-I-C Dubai. All right. Well, thanks very much for coming in. No um, Thank you. When I, when, when I, if I ever, I'm a slow reader, so when I ever get to the end of that book, we'll maybe come back in and have a chat. Oh, book club. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> cool. All right. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye.